now here we are, days before this race, 75 police officers in this meeting ballroom up at the Hilton Universal as I'm there with a clipboard telling them, hey, I'm going to need you at this intersection shutting this down. I need these freeway on and off ramps. Just imagine what that's like for a kid in a homeless shelter who's looking at another kid from a homeless shelter who is pulling this off. And so to them, it was it was unreal. Even to me, like as it was all happening, I'm like, this can't be real. This can't really be be happening right now. Welcome to the Commune Podcast, where every week we explore the ideas and practices that bring us together and help us live healthy and purpose-filled lives. I'm your host, Jeff Krasno. Commune is also an amazing online course platform where you can study with the world's greatest teachers who will enhance your overall well-being. Come visit us at onecommune.com. Ken Wadake Jr. is known as the Free Hugs Guy. He's a motivational speaker, peace activist, and founder of the Free Hugs Project, which gained popularity when he made major news headlines for his peacekeeping efforts and de-escalation of violence during protests, riots, and political rallies. But his life today is so much different than when he was a kid. He grew up with four siblings and a single mom, going to school during the day and sleeping at homeless shelters at night. Today, we talked to Ken about the incredible, inspiring story of how he changed his circumstances and ended up changing the lives of millions of people in the process. Can you take us a little bit through your story? I mean, you grew up here, right? Yes, yes. So um, grew up here in South Central Los Angeles. Before then, uh, my family, we were living in Seattle, Washington at the time. Uh, Five kids in our family. One day we came home from school to our house being raided, and my father was arrested. And my mom decided at that time she was going to just take all five kids in our family and moved us here to Los Angeles. We got here uh, 1991, so shortly after our arrival, we're watching on the news the Rodney King beating happen, and then a little while after that, the uh, the LA riots of 92. And we were still a new family in Los Angeles trying to get on our feet at the time. And so, you know, while everyone else is watching these riots take place on the news, we're looking right outside the windows of the shelter that we're in and seeing all of the fires and uh, the chaos going on, watching the race divide happen as we saw um, the black versus white, black versus Asian community, just so much division happening right before us. And uh, and that was like my welcome to LA was seeing this uh, level of chaos unfold right in front of us. So fast forward, by the time I got to uh, middle school, I went from being this kid that I felt like was really outgoing. I, I had so many siblings in in my house. We didn't really have the opportunity to be shy, but eventually I became very shy, very introverted, kept to myself when I would walk around campus and um, and just really struggled to to find myself while I was in school. And what were your living conditions at this point in your life? Oh, it was it was rough. We were hopping in and out of homeless shelters pretty much my entire young adult life because for my mom raising five kids, 
uh, by herself, it always made it hard for her to go out and find work because babysitters were expensive. So being in these shelters, it was really tough. And some of the, the spaces that we would stay in, I mean, just imagine like a room this size, probably even a little smaller with all six of us in there. So the boys, we would have um, like sleeping bags on the floor. My mom and sister had like their little beds or cot, whatever you would call it. And and that went on for what I felt was far too long. You know, just so many years of our life trying to get on our feet. Our living conditions as children, it wasn't easy at all. Yeah. So you weren't only dealing with the actual hardships of being homeless, but you were also dealing with the stigma associated with it. Yeah. That must be tough with, with friends and, and social group. Very much so. Well, you try to hide it in school because, you know, kids are mean at that age. And so uh, you just worry about any of that word getting out and then getting picked on even beyond uh, your regular appearance, haircut, clothes, shoes. Uh, I think even beyond that, when kids know, oh, you actually live in a, in a homeless shelter, it, that could be really bad for a, a young kid. So then you discovered something that you excelled at yeah. and you were really fast. It, it, came <laughs> by, it came by accident. My way of coping with the struggles that we were going through, I would just hit the streets and just go run. And, um, and I, I think that's where some of the initial talent started to come from, but I didn't know that I was an athlete. And so one day as I was in uh, high school and there was a coach at the school, um, one day he was walking past me, he said, Hey, how come every time I walk past you, you're looking at the ground. And, uh, I told him, well, when I make eye contact with people, they give me dirty looks. Sometimes they have mean things to say. So it's just easier for me to kind of keep to myself. And he said, well, let's get you out. Uh, on the track team. And so I was super excited about it. I, I remembered rushing back to the shelter and telling my mom, hey, the coach wants me to join the track team. Uh, what do you think? And she was like, well, we can't really afford any extracurricular activities, but if you could figure out how to make it happen, go for it. So I went back to the school and I remembered in PE class, people leave behind their old shoes and running shorts and things. And I just grabbed those and I started training with the team. By the time school came back in session, and I had told that coach, hey, I, I really want to run the mile as my primary event. And he had said, well, I was talking with your counselor and found out that your family lives in a homeless shelter that's not nearby the school. And so there's a charter school in uh, the district nearby where you're supposed to be. And he said, so I'm like fighting to keep you here. And sure enough, he was able to uh, just through talking to the counselor, got me to stay there. And he had told me, hey, just with keeping you here at this school, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about your well-being. So just know that you can lean on me. You can lean on some of these teammates that you've been training with to change your circumstances, to run away from homelessness. And so I set out to run my first mile, ended up running that in four minutes and 17 seconds. And that... So wait a minute, four minutes and 17 seconds in your first mile. First mile. What's the world record for a mile? I know for a long time, the American record was 347, which was held by my coach. And so, yeah, as a high school kid, probably 15 years old at the time, running a 417, people were like, where did that come from? And, and I think a lot of it was just hitting the streets and, and training on my own. And so already having some of that stamina built up, but then just knowing that I didn't want to let people down. I didn't want to let that coach down, my teammates down. These were people who, for the first time, I felt like they believed in me, but... Even more importantly, 
I saw it as a, a ticket out of homelessness. Like if I do this well, maybe I can get to college. If I do this well, maybe it can open up other opportunities for me. So I was literally running for my life. Like that was how I viewed it. You can go back to these shelters, or I think at the time I was thinking about if I graduate from high school, what do I do next? I was probably just gonna go into a branch of the armed forces. And and I'm, I'm glad that I didn't go that route. I feel like there's there's a lot more that I've been able to provide for my family and, and even give to the country with some of the work that I've been able to do as opposed to um, going into the armed forces right out of high school, which at the time I felt would have been my only option if it wasn't for track and field. Take us through your track and field career and then how that kind of segued into your first swing at sort of community activism or community organization? Yeah, totally. Uh, so after high school, well, you know, it was interesting. Uh, a number of college coaches and scouts, they started coming out to my races to see me run. And I didn't really know much about the sport. I was just doing it for the people that were around that I cared about. And um, I really wanted to go to um, UCLA or USC and at that time, we had been transferred to a shelter that was in downtown San Diego. And while I was at that school, I had just finished up my run. And then my high school coach says, hey, Steve Scott was here to see you. He left his phone number. And I'm like, who the heck is Steve Scott? He goes, Steve Scott is America's fastest miler. He holds the American mile record. He's like famous for being a miler. And that's your event. And um, I was like, well, where is he? And he's like, well, he said he had to leave, but he really wanted to talk to you because he's taking a coaching position at a college in San Diego and he wants you to go there. And so I was like, no, I'm already set on, I want to go to UCLA or, or USC. And then uh, when their scholarship offer came back, it was a partial. And I was like, oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to afford that. So I went back and tracked down Steve and he was like, I was hoping you would call me, gave me a full ride. So then I ended up going to Cal State San Marcos. I got faster there. From there, I joined the Nike Farm Team, which is an Olympic development program that was based out of Stanford University. In training with them, now I'm around all of these athletes, some of whom had already competed in the Olympics, and I just really loved the sport. And so while I was there, I started thinking about all of these kids that I grew up in and out of these shelters with that would like never have the sort of opportunity that I had where someone comes into their life, believes in them, tries to change their circumstances. So I wanted to be that for these kids. So every day I would leave track practice, I would go volunteer my time at homeless shelters around there. Eventually I left the Bay Area. I was down here in LA. And so I continued doing the same thing. I would start spending time in these homeless shelters trying to tell these kids Hey, look, change your life. You can change your circumstances. You know, those are you guys that are um, using drugs right now or in gangs right now. Like, let's hone in on what your actual talents are. And, and it was crazy because sometimes they would tell me like really off the wall stuff. Like I'd say, what's the, your biggest goal that you could think of right now? And I remember one kid said, um, it was a girl and she said, my biggest goal is to end up on the Jerry Springer show so I could tell the whole world all of my drama. And I'm like, yo, you've got to dream bigger than that, you know? So I convinced uh, a number of the kids, you know, to hone in on what some of their talents were. And then I told them, why don't we create an event together? Let's create this event. We'll call it the Hollywood Half Marathon. We'll shut down Hollywood Boulevard and we'll um, try to bring out as many runners as possible to raise funds and awareness for homeless teens. 
because I realized I can't just tell them to change their circumstances on their own. Sometimes you have to show them, sometimes you have to hold their hand. So that was my way of holding their hand and, um, and just really trying to inspire them. And so we set out to do it. We called up LAPD. You say, hey, how much is it going to cost to shut down Hollywood Boulevard? And the cop laughed. Yeah, so that's something to put in context. That, that happens kind of for major movie premieres for sure. or for the Oscars, right? This yeah. is not a simple thing that happens every day. No, it's not just it's some guy who came out of a homeless shelter that said, hey, I've got this idea. I want to shut down Hollywood Boulevard. So that was why the cop, he was like, do you understand you know, the cost of that and all of the logistics that goes into shutting down such an iconic road? And um, I didn't think anything of it. You know, I was like, well, I mean, there's a bunch of kids in this shelter that I'm trying to inspire. And he's like, yeah, you might want to choose somewhere else to do that. And we were actually on speakerphone at the shelter at the time. And, you know, I remember the look on their faces where it was just like, boom, shut down. This is not happening. That look of disappointment from from them, I was like, oh man, we can't let this be the end. And so I started reaching out to various um, media outlets and saying, hey, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's my story and why I'm trying to do it. And fortunately, NBC4 LA got on it right away, shared the story. From there, there were all of these other news sites that started picking it up. Celebrities started reaching out to me. Some of them were runners already, but they hadn't competed in, in races. And they were like, we want to get behind your cause. And so they started tweeting about it, spreading the word. And it helped uh, with just getting all these runners out. Before you knew it, we had over 10,000 people that had registered to run in the Hollywood Half Marathon. I still wasn't even sure yet how I was going to shut down the boulevard, you know, but we got the money. Though I was like, well, we've got a million bucks now. So called the cop back up and I said, well, we've got the money, so we want to try to make it happen. And we were like down to the wire for the date that I had set in mind to pull this off. And before you know it, just made all of the connections. And so days before, it was really amazing for some of those kids who were living at the shelter at the time, some of them at the LA Covenant House, some at the Los Angeles Youth Network, being there in that meeting where they knew me as the guy initially who was like, I don't like cops either. I don't trust the cops because none of these kids did either. So I'm like, no, we don't really vibe with the cops. And now here we are days before this race, 75 police officers in this meeting ballroom up at the Hilton Universal as I'm there with a clipboard telling them, hey, I'm going to need you at this intersection shutting this down. I need these freeway on and off ramps. Just imagine what that's like for a kid in a homeless shelter who's looking at another kid from a homeless shelter who is pulling this off. And so to them, it was, it was unreal. Even to me, like as it was all happening, I'm like, this can't be real. This can't really be be happening right now. I didn't get to breathe that sigh of relief until that first runner crossed the finish line. Was that moment the moment where you kind of felt like, damn, like anything is possible? Totally. Totally. Because I mean, that was such a, a feat that I couldn't have even dreamed that. You know, I, I remember standing on the balcony, we were at the W Hotel they became our host hotel of the event because the starting line ran past there. And just imagine what it's like for a single mother that struggled raising five kids her entire life. And we're there on the balcony right before the race was about to start. And I had told my mom, in about five minutes, 
there should be about 10,000 people that are going to run past the front of this hotel right now. And she was on the balcony and she was watching. And then as they run by, my mom just burst into tears. And she's like, all of these people are out here because my son, who grew up in these shelters nearby, wanted to inspire some of these young kids to show them that that doesn't have to be their finish line. And, and it was such a special moment because my mom and I, we, we struggled the most uh, getting along growing up because I felt like she put all this pressure on me as the first son in the family that without a dad in the house, all this pressure falls onto Kenny. And, and so we butt heads a lot. And, and that was such a, a special moment for her to see that sort of pride that, that came from my mother. It was, it was really special. And uh, to know that even just a moment like that had helped us overcome some of our personal issues, but even to show her that like all of the struggling that we did for, for over a decade after my father was out of the picture, that like it doesn't have to be like that anymore. And that was kind of how we just set out on this pace to just try and change as many things in our lives as, as possible. And um, so things are, are good now, you know, but um, growing up was really rough. Obviously, running played such a central part of your life and, and of your trajectories. You ended up at the Boston Marathon, not exactly how you would imagine yourself being at the not Boston Marathon. Bit. Yeah. So, so just imagine after we put on this, uh, what I felt was a dream race. It was a dream come true to pull this thing off. And... Afterward, our whole production staff, we, we go and get a bite to eat. We're hanging out. We say, all right, let's um, take a break from like breaking down a lot of the stuff. Uh, we'll go hang out. And then the next morning, we'll continue after we watch the Boston Marathon together. So because as runners, the Boston Marathon is like our Super Bowl. So we're watching the Boston Marathon and bombs go off at the finish line of their race. And Initially, we were like, there's no way that that really happened. Because just imagine that, like, a day earlier, we're at the finish line of our own race. And so I know what that's like when you're high-fiving runners, you're hugging them, and all of this uh, joy and excitement as people cross the finish line. And now we're watching on the news as just on the other side of the country, people's limbs are blown off, people died at the, uh, at the finish line of the race. And I was just in shock. I felt like it was such a, an attack on something that I loved so much because it changed my life. Like if it wasn't for running, I don't even know where I would be literally today, like right now. Running has played such an a, a intricate part in so many different areas of my life. Runners have been some of the best friends that I've ever met, people who encouraged me and motivated me. And I knew I needed to have some sort of bold standard of solidarity because I didn't want people to be scared saying, well, I'm not going to participate in this race or that race because what if something like that happens again? So I set out on this campaign to try to promote as many people to come out to the next Boston Marathon as possible. And in promoting it, then I realized, well, 
maybe I need to run a marathon too. And I had never run a marathon before. Like before that, the lar- the longest distance for me was a 5K, that's three miles, you know? So a marathon, 26.2 miles, um, I was like, oh, this is going to be tough. But then of all marathons to choose, I didn't know that you have to qualify to run in the Boston Marathon. And the qualification standards are insane. I knew that, well, if I'm going to try to pull this off, it's probably going to take me a year to train to, uh, to run that qualification standard. And, and so I started training to do it, called up my coach at Nike, he said, can you put together a, a workout plan for me? Even he doubted it. He's like, Ken, you're not built for a marathon, man. So I started training tried to qualify uh, at this race. And um, I ended up staying on pace the whole way until right as I came through the finish line, I ran the 305 that I needed to run, but it was like 0.11 seconds or something like that. So wasted an entire year of training and now unable to go. So you ran the bit and it was 305, like and 11 seconds, yeah, yeah. and that wasn't good enough. No. You had to hit the 305. You, it has to be 305.00 to go to the Boston Marathon. There's no, like, they don't bend on, on those qualification standards based on what your age is. So, like, the older you get, the slower the time gets. And in that year, a 305 flat wouldn't have even gotten me there because so many people were trying to run in the Boston Marathon that they actually sped up the qualification time. So it would have been like maybe a 3.04 or 3.03 that it would have taken for me to get there. So um, I tried again six days later, which you don't do. If you've ever run a marathon before, you would know like you're still struggling to get feeling back in your legs like a month later, not even six days. And here I was, I ran that first race on a Sunday I came back that same Saturday, flew out to Utah, and I was like, I'm going to try this again. Because, you know, here I was, I'm trying to inspire and motivate these kids that were living in, in the shelter at the time and telling them, you could do anything, put your mind to it, you could pull it off. And they're like, but Ken, you can't run a marathon, though. And so, you know, I, I needed to prove them wrong, and I needed to get to the Boston Marathon. So I flew out to Utah because there was this race called Big Cottonwood Mountain that you would come down the side of that mountain and then it finishes at sea level. So my thought was, well, if you're coming down the side of a mountain, it's going to propel you forward fast. I was like, oh, I got this. Come through. I run exactly 305 again, and this time like 0.9 seconds, right? So even just a little faster again, but not fast enough to get into the Boston Marathon. It was the first time I had come through the finish line of a race in all my years of running, and I crossed the line, and I just burst into tears. One, my body was hurting. Two, I, I felt like not only did I let down these kids at the shelter, but all of the people that I was promoting this campaign to online, saying that let's get as many people out to the Boston Marathon to show our stand of solidarity, to show that we won't be intimidated by these acts of terrorism on our sport. And so now the guy who was leading this campaign isn't able to participate in the race. So you can imagine what that felt like for me. So I got back to the shelter and I was talking to the kids and, uh, and I said, hey, I've tried everything that I can to try to get into the Boston Marathon. I can't do it. What do you guys think if I just fly out to Boston anyway? I print free hugs on a t-shirt and I just go and try to hug as many people as possible just to show them we're not gonna allow um, hate to divide us and just to remind people how important love is and how much we need to come together. If you've ever met some of these kids out here that live in the, uh, in the homeless shelters or even some of these kids from the hood, they're very doubtful of any of that love stuff, right? So 
they're looking at me with the side eye. And then right away, they're like, man, Ken, that's the stupidest idea we ever heard of. Who's going to hug some random brother in Boston? Boston of all places, you're not going to get any hugs. You're wasting your time. And so I let their doubt set into my head. Uh, but I had already purchased this flight because I was so sure that I was going to qualify to get to Boston. I booked a hotel room, flight, everything, right. thinking so I'm going to run. I'm yeah. going yeah. no matter what. And so... I stopped by the mall. I grabbed a, a black T-shirt. I went to one of those like on on the spot printers. They printed the free hugs on the T-shirt, and I flew out to Boston. And as I was on the plane, and I was really like thinking about this idea, like, okay, where do I stand? How do I do it? How do I initiate that first hug? Is anyone even going to hug me? All this doubt really started to take over, and I was like, man, this isn't going to go well. And so I got there, and I set up on the race course. I was probably about midway because I said midway might be the sweet spot where I get people where they're still kind of excited, but the pain is just starting to set in. And so they could use a hug at that point. And uh, when I got there on course, it was like the first wave of maybe a dozen people or so just blew right past me as I'm holding this sign. And I set up a camera and they just blew right past me. And I was like, ah, oh, this is going to be a rough day. And when the first guy came in to get that hug, it changed everything. That broke the ice. Once he took that first hug, nonstop, thousands of people, young, old, men, women, uh, people that stuck around and shared words of encouragement with me, people that said how much this is needed, uh, what it meant to them, people who would just come in and hug me and just cry on my shoulders, people that would just say, keep this up. The world needs so much more of this. And I went from going there with all of this doubt to like my heart exploding while I'm out there. I mean, just imagine what it's like being a kid who grew up the way that I grew up to where now you just have like this outpouring of thousands of strangers just coming in and hugging you. And I'm talking about real hugs. Some people who would like pick me up and run a few paces with me. Some people that would like just really stay there and, and hang on and talk it was it was really special this was a gift that you were giving but you were receiving it too. yeah that's what's so cool about hugs though you know people don't realize it's it's not possible to give a hug without receiving a hug and and i wish that more more people would take up on that offer you know when you're when you're offering hugs uh, it, it's helping you too so the experience coming out of the boston marathon kind of set you off on a whole path Yes, that was at first about going to more races and more sporting events. Is that right? Mm -hmm. But then eventually that morphed into something else. What was that inflection point? Well, I, I was going to a number of different races for a while and, and that was where this work it had started to feel a little flat because I realized I'm always around happy people. That really set in to mind when I was at the Disneyland half marathon and I was given hugs there and it was like that light bulb goes off. You're at what's called the happiest place on earth, giving hugs to try to make people happy. And I was like, this isn't my place. This isn't where I'm supposed to be. Uh, and especially it was at the time when Trayvon Martin had just been shot by, by George Zimmerman. There were a number of 
similar incidents like that, that that had taken place, the Michael Brown shooting. And my heart just started to get really, really heavy at that time, seeing all of this death and, and destruction and riots and protests starting to unfold. And I felt like if anywhere needs hugs or dialogue around unity and inclusion and civility, it would be those places. And so I I knew that showing up at these running races and, and giving people hugs, that's not the best use of what I felt were some of my talents or my abilities to bring people together. And so Around that time, uh, I started making some YouTube videos in my studio, just sharing with people how important it is that that we come together. And an agent out of Connecticut had picked me up um, to start speaking at schools about that same uh, similar message. And so I started traveling around to these schools and I started going to riots and protests. And I was in uh, South Carolina one night. I was given a lecture at um, at the university there, and then the riots unfolded in North Carolina. And I remember coming out of that talk, and as we got out into the lobby, all of these kids were glued to the TV watching what was happening in North Carolina. And I said, how far are we from there? And they said, it would probably take you about 30 minutes to, to get there, maybe 30 minutes to an hour. And I remember just jamming out of the school as quick as possible and rushed out to North Carolina. And as soon as I showed up there, it was already a really chaotic scene. Uh, There's all of this tear gas and pepper spray in the air. The police were shooting those flashbang devices that sound like gunshots. And so as I'm running in, there's tons of people running out. Even people saying, yo, man, don't go in there. It's bad. It's bad. And... And I knew that's where I need to be, where people were going to be hurting and, and where I can lend a hand. And so as I get in there, you know, right away, tying a covering over your face because all of the gas that was in the air, so you just start choking immediately. And so people had already started breaking into uh, some of the buildings downtown. I remember seeing as they had busted, broke into the art gallery and they were taking art off the wall. And I was like, man, this is starting to seem like L.A. in 92 all over again. But in L.A. in 92, I was a boy and there wasn't really much that I could have done as this 11-year-old kid watching the riots all around me and wanting there to be peace. But now as an adult, I was like, I, I have a voice now. I can try to figure out what I can do to help in this situation. And so as I'm seeing all of that chaos unfold right away, I start talking to some of the protesters and letting them know, hey, man, you don't you don't want to do this. You guys that are busting up cars like they're jumping on top of cars and like crushing them from the top. I saw some guys just walking around with hammers and they're walking up to the police cars and just banging out the windows. Some of the hotel workers that were in that hotel were all hiding behind the reception desk as there was like a line of protesters just throwing rocks and bricks into the hotel trying to hit them. And some of them were laughing about it. And I'm like, what good is this going to solve? If anything, all of the media cameras that are down here are filming all of this and it makes you guys look bad. It's not going to create any change at all. 
And so as I'm having that conversation with some of the protesters, you know, you start to form a crowd around you because people are like, what's this guy talking about? And, and that crowd started to get bigger as I'm walking and, and talking with them. And then things took a, a really interesting turn as we were walking by a line of riot police and the largest cop that's in the crowd, you know, and here he is, he's this like giant six foot something and not like six foot one like me. I'm talking, I think this cop is probably, Chris might be maybe six, nine or so. So giant guy in his riot gear, white guy in North Carolina, right? And he says, hey man, do I get one of those hugs? And I was like, oh man, here I am with all of these protesters who I've got to stand down. You know, they're not crushing cars or running into the buildings. And a lot of these protesters being black, uh, some of them Latino, all of them are looking like, what's he going to do? Is he really going to go and hug this cop? Right. Right. And so I was super nervous at the time. Like my heart is racing. At first, I wanted to be sure, is that even what he said? Because I don't want to walk up on this line of police and and get tased or, or shot in front of like this whole crowd. And so I was like, what'd you say? And he said, hey, do I get a hug. Come here, bring it in. And I was like, damn, he really did say that. So I go over towards their line and I hug this cop. And sure enough, before I could even turn around from coming out of that hug, these protesters who were in agreement with me and I had got to stand down, they're now picking up those same bricks and bottles that they were throwing at the police officers and now they're cursing at me they're calling me all sorts of stuff a coon a uncle tom like way even worse stuff than that before i could turn around and they're like come over here come over here and you know at, at that moment you go into fight or flight mode and i'm like well i'm definitely not gonna like fight this mob but i'm still really fast i could just run away really quick <laughs> you know yeah. but you've got all these news cameras around and one thing I've always known is when you run away from a fight like that, you're probably going to get chased. So I knew in this moment, I'm thinking I have to like really defend the message that I came here with. And I'm thinking, what would someone like Dr. Martin Luther King do in a situation like this when he's trying to create peace in a really volatile situation? Do you back off and do you allow chaos to win or do you stand your ground for what your message is? And so rather than running off, instead I approached these protesters and it was, it was almost like fear went out the window in that moment because now I became more purpose driven. Here's my purpose. Here's my message in being here. I didn't even think about what could have happened as a number of them already had rocks and bricks in their hands because they were throwing them into buildings, they were throwing them at the police, but I didn't have on any armor. I literally just had on, just as you see me right now, a black t-shirt. So rather than running away, I start walking in towards them and letting them know why it's important for us to see each other as, as human beings and how change was going to come about. Change wasn't going to come about by us destroying that area. And I was letting them know, look, I'm not even from here but I know what happens if you guys allow this to escalate in your city. I watched what happened when LA allowed it to escalate and when the police eventually retreated and allowed the city to run things on their own. 
there was well over 50 deaths that happened here in LA at that time, the countless amounts of fires, people who lost their businesses. And so at that moment, I'm trying to explain to them that's what the future could be if you allow things to just go on as they are. Like you guys are going to destroy your own community. You'll suffer because of that part of why I suffered as a child. It made it very hard for my mom. We were living right in that area. So when everything got burned down, there's no work. And so there's people who have very little that are going to suffer the most. You're not going to hurt the rich people or the police or who you felt or your oppressor. You're going to hurt your own self. And, and that conversation really got through to people and it helped deescalate some of the tension that that was there that night and and I felt like that was a real turning point for the work that I was doing here I was before showing up giving hugs at a race and now in that moment seeing wow in the middle of a riot you, you created um thinking points for people so you became sort of a first responder who was helping with conflict resolution, but in a completely new and different way. Yeah. And, and you've brought that now to just countless and countless situations. Like, I, I believe, you, you know, you went to Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Which was probably one of the most scary or traumatic situations I was in, was in Charlottesville. Yeah. And, you know, you've given a lot of people hugs some of which, you know, you, you probably don't share their values and that you disagree with and that, you know, don't rep- represent a great morality. White supremacists, you know, homophobes, misogynists, all, all along, you know, all along the spectrum. And I guess one of my questions would be for you is, is there anyone that is not deserved of a hug? Wow, great question. Um, I, no, I, I think even the people that you think wouldn't deserve a hug probably got that way because they didn't receive hugs. They didn't feel a strong personal connection to anyone. And, and I feel like that's what's causing so much hatred today. That's what's causing so much um, division and um, stress and mental health issues for a lot of people is when they feel that they're alone or or isolated. Isolation has driven so many people to, to suicide. When a, when a person feels like they're not loved, then what's the point in in living? And when you feel that way, it makes it easier to hurt people because you don't care about yourself. So then you don't care about other people either. And, and so when I'm out on this mission, it's because I, I wholeheartedly believe it. I truly believe that we can change the world through positive interaction. Even if it's not a hug, let it be dialogue. Let it be just reaching across the aisle to interact with people that you might feel aren't deserving of it, people that you think are different than you, uh, people with different belief systems. And it's through that that we find common ground. There's been people that I felt like there's no way I'm going to get along with this person and then find out that we have a similar taste in music 
or that we like the same sports or activities. And so whatever our beliefs are that we felt divided us, when you can build your friendship just on that one thing that you can stand on and tune out some of the uh, sometimes trivial differences, then that's where change happens. So, so no, I, I don't think that there's anyone that's um, undeserving of a hug. Sure, there's people that probably none of us want to hug, but knowing that somebody, the right person, hugging them, it, it can change their life and the person that's hugging them as well. Yeah. Well, it takes a rare individual to find that kind of compassion and God bless you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for doing this interview. Appreciate it. Thank you. is a great reminder of what we can accomplish if we are motivated by love and what happens when we truly believe in doing whatever we can to make the world a better place. In the face of adversity, even when people told him he couldn't, even when his body told him he couldn't, Kenny persisted. Sometimes it felt like an uphill battle, even when it was downhill. But time and time again, he kept going. He stayed motivated by love and held firm in his belief that human connection even just a simple hug, can change the world. Thanks for listening to The Commune Podcast. Subscribe now for new episodes every week. I'll see you next time.